Welcome back to Art History for All. I'm Allison Healy. If you walk through a large museum and take note of the different galleries you can visit, some may seem familiar and make a lot of sense. Of course, an art museum would have a medieval gallery, or a gallery of 19th century French art, or a gallery of Native American art, or even a gallery of decorative arts. Some museums, however, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, may also have a gallery of arms and armor. Now, what would weapons and armor be doing in an art museum? Arms and armor are, just like decorative objects, paintings, or sculpture, designed objects. They have a more specific and practical function than a painting on a wall has, but a craftsman put thought into their design all the same. This is especially true of weapons and armor that were intended for ceremonial or ritual purposes, as they are usually less utilitarian and are able to feature imagery in the way that an ordinary warrior's breastplate or sword might not. This is the case with a blade in the Mets collection that I want to discuss in this episode, a Southeast Asian weapon known as a kris or kris. This crease is notable for the images that are carved into the blade itself, not just the hilt or grip. Clearly, this would have been impractical to actually use to cut or stab, so what might its actual purpose have been? Are the images carved into the metal part of a narrative, or just ornamental? What makes a weapon a weapon, and what makes it a work of art? I've once again been limited in my resources on this topic due to the nearest university library still being closed to the general public, so I would not be surprised if I missed out on some crucial info that can only be found in a physical book or in a non-English source. If you can fill in such a gap, you are always welcome to send corrections with citations to allisonh at arthistoryforall.com. This episode may be about a sword, but it's really not as violent as you might expect. So you're safe to sit back, relax, and listen as I unsheathe and examine this carved crease. A description of crease with sheath 18th to 19th century, listed as Malaysian in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, accession number 91.1.899A and B. Made of iron and wood with gold details, measuring 47.8 centimeters long and 10.2 centimeters wide without the sheath, and weighing 306.2 grams, or 10.8 ounces. The image the Met makes available online only shows the blade itself without the sheath. It is a straight blade that comes to a point at the tip and flares out towards the hilt, carved with stylized figures on the metal's surface. From the tip of the blade going down, we see a figure depicted frontally, followed by another figure depicted from the side, followed by a building of some kind with a tiled roof. Below this stacking of images is an image of two figures in another structure with a tiled roof, appearing to hold hands. Below this grouping is another stylized figure with long, slender arms, touching what appears to be a sort of flask or vessel. A similar image sits below this one, but this time the figure's clothing appears wrapped around their entire body, not just their lower half as before. Finally, 
at the base of the blade, there is a carving of a figure, likely a deity, sitting on a lotus on the back of an elephant, accompanied by a tiny guard of some kind, who peeks out above the bottom of the blade. The elephant's trunk protrudes from the side of the blade, a typical feature of the crease called the belelai gaja in Malay, or appropriately, elephant's trunk. A band of floral ornament finishes the flared bottom of the blade, and its design is highlighted in gold. The even lighting of this archival quality photograph prevents us from easily seeing the pattern of the blade's metalwork, though a little of it is discernible near the base. The hilt of the crease is primarily wood, shaped into a sort of pistol grip with some minimal carved scroll work to ornament it. Where it attaches to the blade, it is covered in finely worked gold ornament that resembles a ball made of tiny stars. Unfortunately, this photograph only allows us to see one side of the crease, so it is unclear whether the other side of the crease has a mirror image of the carving we see here, or some other type of imagery. One look at the Met's crease, or even any of the creases you see when you do a Google image search, and its differences from what we in the West may think of when we think of a sword or dagger are pretty clear. The flared shape of the blade's base alone is unusual, but appears to be the common element across creases, which otherwise vary in size, ornamentation, and even whether the length of the blade is straight, like the Met's, or wavy. How such a blade evolved is up for debate, but it is fairly universally acknowledged as a stabbing rather than a slashing or cutting weapon. This is made even more clear by the pistol grip common to many creases, including the Mets, which requires the user hold it in a specific way that really only lends itself to stabbing. The history and origin of the crease is just as hotly debated as the evolution of its shape, due in part to the many layers of myth and legend that have accumulated around the idea of the crease over time. A 2000 article by Malaysian political scientist and historian Farish A. Noor pinpoints a proto-crease emerging in mainland Southeast Asia as early as 1 CE, but it seems as though the crease did not reach its ultimate form until around the 14th century, and after 1600 or so, there was little change in the blade's form. With the spread of Hinduism and the establishment of Hindu courts led by Devarajas, or god-kings, throughout Southeast Asia from around the 3rd century BCE to the 7th century CE and beyond, the crease became not just a practical weapon, but also a part of these courts' mythology. A 1956 examination of creases by scholar A. H. Hill mentioned several Javanese Hindu kings to whom the introduction of the crease is attributed. The king Sakutram was allegedly born with the crease Pasapati by his side. Hill also mentions a warrior chief in Javanese folklore, who is said to have removed his phallus and transformed it into a crease, gifting it as an heirloom to his younger brother. However the crease came to be integrated into Hinduized court life in Southeast Asia, it eventually became a key ritual object for such courts, a means through which Devarajas could display both their earthly and their cosmic power. Nor emphasizes the integration of the crease into the Hindu cults of Shiva and Vishnu in particular, as well as its association with major figures and narratives in Hinduism, including the Mahabharata. 
This is highly relevant to the Metz crease, as the museum itself identifies the images carved on the blade as probably episodes from the Javanese version of the Mahabharata called the Mintaraga. Around the same time that the crease began making appearances in retellings of Hindu narratives, it also began to acquire magical powers. Courtly epics and dramas often featured blades that flew around doing their master's bidding. As Hill tells it, creases with certain patterns in the folded metal of their blade were considered lucky, and some types of lucky creases, or kiris bertua, were even said to be able to wound or kill someone if they were only pointed at them, or even if they stabbed their footprints or photograph. An exceptional kiris, Hill writes, may even jump out of its sheath at the approach of danger and do the owner's fighting for him on its own. Before the 1914-18 war, there was a carice in the Taiping Museum which was supposed to fly out at night, kill someone, clean itself, and return to its showcase before morning. End quote. Aside from the Taiping Museum creases alleged powers occurring around World War I, Hill doesn't specify when certain beliefs about Kreese's powers developed, whether they were necessarily connected with Hinduism, or whether some of them emerged following the conversion of a great portion of maritime Southeast Asia to Islam around the beginning of the 15th century. Even as the conversion from Hinduism to Islam required the denial of many aspects of Hindu belief, the Kreese and its mystique seemed to persist nor characterizes the Islamic conversion of the Indonesian Malay world as a total reinvention of that world, along with all its symbols and markers of identity. This included the crease, as Noor describes in the following passage. The Hindu empus, master creasemakers, and pandais, general weaponsmiths, had claimed that their creases were forged from meteorite iron, a gift from the heavens. But the Muslims replied that Allah had created the heavens, and all the meteorites lying around the heavens were his property as well. The Hindu deities may have been present during the forging of the primordial crease, but had not Allah created the raw materials? These discursive skirmishes continued for generations, and in the midst of this process of social transformation, the station and role of the crease within the complex cosmological framework of Indonesian Malay society suffered a radical demotion. For with the consolidation of Islam's hold on the Malay world, the squadrons of magical flying creases were finally grounded. The general demystification of the crease, Noor continues, also allowed crease-making to become less rarefied, and after the mid-18th century, it had become more of a folk craft in some places than an exclusive and mystical practice. At the same time that Islam spread across the region, European colonizers also began encroaching upon Southeast Asia, 
and as a result, the Kreese had to take a back seat to different kinds of weaponry, such as ballistics, that were more effective against an invading force than a single stabbing blade. Kreeses did, however, remain a common part of Indonesian and Malaysian dress, with multiple European sources commenting on how they were worn in the belts of almost all adult men. European colonizers, particularly the Dutch and British East India companies, in the case of Indonesia and Malaysia, eventually absorbed Southeast Asia into their empires, and among the many things that they dismissed or denigrated in the process of establishing ideological control there were the cosmologies and belief systems of which the Kreese was a part. This went hand in hand with disarming Malaysians and Indonesians entirely. British colonial administrator Frank Swetnam said in 1908, quote, In 1874, every Malay had as many weapons as he could carry, say, two daggers in his belt, two spears in his hand, a gun over his shoulder, and a long sword under his arm. The boys were usually content with two or three weapons. Now the men carry umbrellas, and the boys slates and books, end quote. Under British rule in what is today Malaysia and Singapore, only British colonial forces were allowed to bear arms. The Kreese became a museum piece to the colonizers, a relic of a time long past, now unnecessary under the new colonial order. At the same time, modernizing Islamic reformers in Malaysia while pushing back against colonialism also pushed back against Malaysian traditions with pre-Islamic origins, including the Bersanding wedding ceremony, the Kukarambut hair-shaving ceremony for babies, Malay burial rites, and, of course, the Kreese. It was probably in light of these perspectives on the Kreese that the Met's example was initially acquired. As the credit line on the Met's website reads, this blade was part of a bequest to the museum from the collection of Edward C. Moore in 1891. Born in New York City in 1827, Moore was a silversmith who contracted and eventually sold his business to Tiffany & Company, where he improved upon Tiffany's silver manufacturing processes. His success as a silversmith allowed him to build a collection that at its height may have contained around 4,000 objects, at least 1,600 of which he bequeathed to the Met upon his death. Most of the objects highlighted in an 1892 article on his collection are glass, but the author also notes Moore's collection of blades and weaponry, saying, quote, Besides the Japanese swords, there is a small collection of antique arms, damascened knives from Malay, darts from Burma, and Persian daggers with ivory hilts inlaid with gold and silver, and African knives, end quote. The crease I've chosen to look at today was doubtless one of those damascened knives from Malay mentioned here. Moore's collection was in part a research endeavor, providing inspiration for his work at Tiffany and for that of other Tiffany craftsmen, with much of the collection on display at Moore's Prince Street Design Studio. This explains his collection's incredible breadth in terms of materials, forms, and types of objects. But where exactly did Moore get all these objects from, especially those from so far away, like the crease? We don't know much, especially considering his collection wasn't catalogued while he was alive, but there are references to Moore traveling to London and Paris, especially for the World's Fairs in which Tiffany exhibited work. 
It seems he built relationships with dealers and auctioneers in those cities, through whom he likely acquired the bulk of his collection. How those middlemen got hold of objects like the crease is down to pure speculation without the benefit of a full provenance record. The crease might have been legitimately traded for and then bought by dealers, or, and I'm inclined to think this is more likely given the colonial structures at play, it was stolen and sold to a dealer for a tidy profit. Illegitimate acquisition might be even more likely due to what the carvings on the crease's blade imply about its use. As I mentioned earlier, the Met cautiously identifies these images as probably scenes from the Javanese version of the Mahabharata, called the Mintaraga. The Mahabharata is a religious epic over 2,000 years old, with connections to even older oral and bardic literary traditions. It is deeply complex, featuring a great many characters, and, as Indian literature scholar James L. Fitzgerald puts it, quote, to synopsize the story of the Mahabharata in abstract oversimplifies it to the point of boredom or turns it into oriental curiosity, end quote. Essentially, condensing the entire Mahabharata is unwise, not just because of its length, but because of its context, a context made even more complex when we try to consider how such an epic changed and adapted outside of India in places like Indonesia and Malaysia. So I won't be summarizing the whole Mahabharata for you, just the parts directly relevant to the crease at hand. The Met's explanatory text points to a specific scene from the Javanese version of the story, in which the god Shiva tests protagonist Arjuna's worthiness for battle in single combat, disguising himself as a hunter. A little further research reveals that in the original story, Arjuna's victory in this test leads Shiva to give him the secret of the terrifically destructive Brahma head or Pashapata weapon. An analysis of a possible depiction of this Pashapata Astra on an architrave at the gate of the 6th century Mahadeva temple in Nagari, Rajasthan, explains some of the possible origins and form of the weapon. One of its other names may mean it is actually a head of Brahma, the creator god whose fifth head Shiva chopped off and turned into a begging bowl. The topmost figure on the crease we are looking at could be holding a bowl, although due to the stylization of the figure and the limits of only looking at a digital image, it's difficult to tell. Nowhere else on the blade does a bowl or skull appear, although the objects next to the two middle figures on the blade may be long-necked vessels of some kind. The passages from the Mahabharata quoted in the analysis of the architrave give us more of a sense of the capabilities of this bowl-turned weapon. Arjuna asks Shiva, If it pleases you to grant me my wish, bull-bannered god, then I wish that divine weapon, Astra, the dreadful Pashapata weapon, my lord, which is called Brahma's head, gruesome, of terrible power, which at the horrible end of the eon will destroy the entire world. With it I may burn down in battle the Danavas and the Rakshasas, the evil spirits and the Pishakas, Gandharvas and snakes. From its mouth, when properly spelt, issues forth thousand of tridents, awful-looking, clubs and missiles like venomous snakes. With it I shall battle Bhishma, Drona, and Kripa, and the always rough-spoken son of the Sutta. 
This is my wish, my lord, who took Baga's eyes, so by your grace I may go forth competent. The token that was held out at the beginning in the first relief on the architrave was thus finally obtained by Arjuna. The Mahabharata again describes the scene. Hearing this, the Partha, Arjuna, hurriedly and attentively purified himself, and when he embraced the feet of the Lord of the universe, the god said to him, Now learn! Then he taught the best of the Pandavas about the missal, Astra, along with the secrets of its return, this missile that is death incarnate. When the moment came, there was an outcry of conchs, drums, and kettle drums by the thousands, and a huge quake occurred. The gods and the Danavas witnessed how that fiercely burning dreadful missile stood bodily deployed at the side of the boundlessly lustrous Pandava. Pashupata weapon's power is catastrophic, terrifying, unavoidable. It is also repeatedly described as a missile, a projectile or flying weapon. Given what we've learned about the Kreese's mythic powers of flight, it's possible that the depiction of the story of Arjuna's test by Shiva on the Kreese's blade is intended to draw a parallel between the powers of the Pashupata weapon and the physical Kreese itself. This idea combined with the fact that the carvings on the crease make it largely unusable as a practical weapon, heavily implies that this crease was used not for combat, but for ritual purposes, possibly even religious ones. However, not being able to find any descriptions of how this episode from the Mahabharata is specifically retold for a Javanese audience, I can't really make any pronouncements. The question of ritual and religion with regard to this crease is complicated. If the Met's dating of this crease to the 18th or 19th centuries is correct, then it was made well after the Islamization of Malaysia and Indonesia. If that is the case, then why would a largely Muslim society make a dagger like this that glorifies a story from the Mahabharata? As Noor notes, Hindu traditions did not simply disappear with the advent of Islam in the region. Instead, Islam layered new meanings on top of Hindu and Buddhist ideas, obscuring them but not destroying them completely. Islam's prohibition of idolatry meant that many images of Hindu deities were heavily abstracted or obscured with arabesques, floral tapestries, and geometric patterns. The images on the Met's crease have stick-like arms and elongated heads with pointy noses, reminiscent of the figures in Javanese Wayang Kulit, or shadow puppet plays. Knowing this, things begin to fall into place. According to Sanskrit theater scholar James R. Brandon, writing in 1970, the most popular shadow plays in Java are from the Pandava cycle, set during the timeline of the Mahabharata. Brandon also notes that Wayankulit, despite some Muslim leaders' efforts, was never truly converted into a Muslim art form, describing the essentially Hindu basis of the plays as too firmly set by this time to be penetrated by Islamic thought. Wayankulit seems to have straddled the line between 
Hinduism, and Islam, and thus figures inspired by the elongated forms that allegedly developed to skirt Muslim anti-idolatry rules would be the perfect choice for a craftsman of this period who wanted to carve images into a blade. Whether this crease was actually used as part of Hindu-based ritual or treated as a mere curiosity remains to be seen. Thus, the Met's crease is sheathed in mystery, not just in relation to its provenance, but also in relation to religion and ritual. A general uncertainty surrounding creases persists, particularly in regard to whose cultural patrimony they rightly belong, that of Malaysia or that of Indonesia. There is a shared heritage between the two, and a sense of kinship that defies the borders set during the colonial era. However, since the 1980s, disputes over territory as well as tensions over Indonesian migrant workers in Malaysia have strained this kinship bond. These and other more minor disputes have prompted the two nations to butt heads over who owns which heritage. All of Indonesia's entries in UNESCO's representative list of the intangible heritage of humanity as of 2011 were contested items of cultural heritage with Malaysia, including the crease. Questions of ownership, provenance, and religion aside, what role do creases play in the modern, post-colonial world? A 1987 article in the Los Angeles Times by Bill Tarrant, highlighting crease makers on Java, suggests that it wasn't very long ago that much of the mystique surrounding the crease still held strong, especially on Java. Tarrant highlighted an 18th-generation empu, Jiwodi Harjo, whose workshop at the time produced up to 200 crease a month, mostly from ordinary iron and nickel, while palace craftsmen still used pieces of a nearby meteorite. Even in the 70s and 80s, Tarrant says, there were reports of strange occurrences involving creases rattling against the wall or flying out of a Muslim cemetery, as former Singaporean ambassador Lee Kun Choi claimed to have observed. At the time of Tarrant's article, he says most men on Java owned a crease at some point in their lives, and the blades were as much tourist curiosities as mystical or ritual objects. By 2000, however, this seems to have changed significantly, at least in some places, with UNESCO noting that since the 70s, crease have lost some of their prominent social and spiritual meaning in society. Nor remarks rather harshly upon some Malaysian men renting creases to wear on their wedding day, and discusses in a footnote how both state religious authorities in Malaysia and opposition Islamic groups have condemned the so-called cult of the crease. What began as a knife, Noor says, has been reduced to a knife, as crease tie pins, letter openers, and paper cutters litter handicraft centers and tourist shops, end quote. But there are some contexts in which the crease, or at least its image, still serves something like its intended purpose. An article in Black Belt magazine discusses the Indonesian martial art pentjak silat and how its blade variations, including those that use the crease, were still being taught as recently as 2011. The Philippines edition of the magazine Tatler noted that the wavy blade used by the main character in the Disney film Raya and the Last Dragon seems to be inspired by the Filipino version of the crease. 
a quick Google search to see if there are any other prominent creases or crease analogs in pop culture reveals that the 2009 video game Demon Souls, developed by Japanese studios, features a weapon called Crease Blade. The original version of the Demon Souls sword is startlingly close to the real thing, from the wavy blade to the pistol grip hilt. Its 2020 remake version, however, is significantly more stylized, albeit rendered with more detail. The Mortal Kombat game series also features a wavy-bladed crease, the proprietary weapon of demon fighter Ashra. Both these virtual versions of the crease make reference to the real blade's magical connections, with Demon Souls describing it as an aid for incantations, and Mortal Kombat conceiving of it as a holy item that purifies the user with every demon it kills. Other video games and series like EverQuest, RuneScape, and Diablo 2 have also included creases, without the added magical boost. These digital blades, with their varying degrees of visual detail and 3D modeling, maintain the mythology of the crease for newer generations, or reduce it to a visually cool but low-level weapon, depending on the function it serves within the game itself. This ties in with Noor's critique of the commodification of the crease, where once it was a significant ritual object, a piece of Malaysian and Indonesian culture, it has in many cases become a mere ornament or a tchotchke to be collected, even if only virtually. The slow commodification of the crease is one reason why more updated scholarship on the crease's history, form, and uses would be extremely welcome. Such scholarship might also further emphasize the crease's role as a significant part of Southeast Asian culture, and hopefully prevent efforts to expel crease mythology from some areas due to Islamic opposition, as Noor warns may happen. Another reason for more updated scholarship was discovered in a Welsh riverbed in 2017. A rusty 18th century crease was found there by a fisherman, raising questions of how such a blade even got there. Carmarthenshire Museum curator Gavin Evans said at the time that the discovery prompted reconsiderations of the importance of Carmarthen as a trading port, but I'd argue it also prompts us to reconsider key aspects of the history of the crease that may have gotten lost behind the admittedly more exciting flying, rattling, poisoning, and so on. Might this waterlogged crease have been a tourist object or a ritual object that was either looted or unscrupulously sold? What is the provenance of creases that turn up in Europe and North America, really? The legendary aspects, the iconography, and the form of creases are all fascinating, but especially in a moment when so many museums are taking a second look at their collections and realizing how many of their objects were acquired unethically, the non-magical movement of creases through trade, theft, and looting deserves investigation, too. The crease's many transformations, from practical weapon to ritual object to collectible artwork and more, emphasize the sheer complexity of histories and cultures, and show us just how arbitrary some of the categories and divisions we impose on our world can be. Thank you so much for listening to Art History for All. You can find a transcript of this podcast with links to images and citations at arthistoryforall.com. Subscribe, rate, and review Art History for All wherever you like to listen to podcasts. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at arthistory4all with the number four. And if you really enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a tip at ko-fi.com slash arthistoryforall. This podcast was produced and narrated by Allison Healy, and the theme was composed by Bruce Healy. Credits for other music can be found in the episode description or at the end of the transcript. Main episodes premiere on the last Monday of every month. Thanks so much for listening, and remember to look closely. You never know what you might see.